and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah the prophet is led by the Lord to go over a list of sins. Don't turn there. You're turning to uh, Luke chapter 19. This is bonus. This is bonus. You can turn there if you want. Isaiah chapter 1. The Holy Spirit leads Isaiah to go over a catalog of some of the sins that were all too common among the people. You know, I've been pastoring a long time and people think their situation's unique. In general, they're doing some of the same things neighbors and others are doing that show their lostness and brokenness in a world apart from Christ. Isaiah chapter 1, he goes over some of the sins of the people and then he says this. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be washed white as snow. That's the concept being related to there in the song. And in the Old Testament days, the priests, among their other jobs, had the, uh, had the not really fun task of being health workers and identifying when a person had a rash that was leprosy and cataloging the spread of it or the end of it so that people could go back out and be with others in public again rather than be isolated and away from the community. And so when it was still alive, rash, and bad things happening, it was the color of blood, scarlet beneath the skin there. And it had to get to the point where it was healing up and turn completely white, white skin that would probably be white like that the rest of the person's life, for the priest to then come and say, okay, now the healing has happened, you can go back out and resume normal conduct in normal society. Though your sins be as scarlet, Isaiah said, repentance and faith will mean God will wash you white as snow. Now, the scar will always be there. The, the sign of your brokenness, the, the ways that you, were, you had your problem. But the, the, the white flesh there, whatever your color of skin was, the white flesh there where there had been that scarlety, messy, bloody mess there that would show that you were healed and back to normal in society and things like that, which is really cool. That song reflects that. And of course, uh, we sing songs like, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? The moment a sinner turns to Jesus, they're forgiven of their sin. They've got a reserved place in heaven. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within. They've got an inheritance that they can already start cashing in on now, but will mean the rest of eternity. All those great things. Hopefully by now you've turned to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we don't have the extra notes today and your bulletins are on the screen behind me uh, because we're having a Palm Sunday type message. I wonder if you know the three things that we for sure know happened on Palm Sunday. And if you don't, if those don't come readily to mind, we're about to read about them in Luke's gospel. But this past Friday, I had the privilege of bringing some popcorn over to the students at the Heritage Academy for their movie day. And they were watching the classic Mary Poppins. Now, it's been a minute since I've seen Mary Poppins. It's the story, of course, of a magical nanny who comes into the home of a Mr. and Mrs. Banks to watch their children. And Mr. Banks, he's a very busy banker. He's so caught up in his own work that sometimes he can't see beyond the end of his nose. And some of us are like that, right? There's so much to do, we just kind of oblivious to things around us, including our own children and that sort of thing. But Mr. Banks doesn't view life at home as a blessing, but kind of as a burden. And so he gets a nanny, hoping that the children's needs will be met that way and he won't have to worry as much about it. What he doesn't know is that Mary Poppins has come to break him of his wrong priorities and to teach him how to live, how to really live. 
but in his stubbornness, he's having a hard time seeing it, and he doesn't want to change. So Mary Poppins' presence leads to kind of a boiling point in his life. And just as every unbroken sinner here fights the changes they know they need to make and tries to argue why they should not change, so does Mr. Bank. And toward the end of the movie, he sings, A Man Has Dreams. That includes the following lyrics. And I wonder if you've had some dashed dreams and things not working out, if you can relate to Mr. Banks. He says, a man has dreams of walking with giants to carve his niche in the edifice of time. But before the mortar of his zeal has a chance to conceal, the cup is dashed from his lips, the flame is snuffed out. He's brought to rack and ruin in his prime. And then he says, thinking about Mary Poppins and how she's trying to change everything in his life, he says, my world was calm, well-ordered, exemplary. Then came this person with chaos in her wake. And now my life's ambitions go with one fell blow. It's quite a bitter pill to take. Well, in the end, Mr. Banks does turn to the better way that Mary Poppins has exemplified. And the movie ends with a happier Mr. Banks and Mrs. Banks and him enjoying his children and promised a new and better situation, even in the bank where Mary Poppins has influenced the bank through the way that he's changing. He changed his opinion about Mary Poppins and adopted her ways, and he lived happily ever after. And of course, our happily ever afters involve some heartaches as well. It's the foundation that Christ gives that helps us make it through the highs and the lows. But today we're going to look at events that happened 1990 years ago this week. Isn't that something? Uh, many scholars believe it was April 3rd. 33 AD when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and so uh, Palm Sunday the Sunday before that uh, Sunday before his resurrection we'd be right in the middle of those events 1990 years ago this week we're going to look at what happened on the day we call, call Palm Sunday but as we do it we're going to see Jesus breaking things everywhere he went as he intended to do and we're going to see people facing the same choice then that people face today. Embrace Jesus and the seemingly chaotic changes he brings as he wants to, us to reorder our lives around the better life, the best life he has for us, the eternal life he has for us, or just continue to break apart, fall apart without him in their lives. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read verse 28 down to verse 48. And when Jesus had said these things, we'll talk about what things just briefly in a moment, but he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, Olive Mountain, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, a donkey tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Why are you untying our colt? <laughs> and they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks, their coats on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Matthew and Mark let us know they were also doing palm branches on the road there as well. They were pulling them off the trees and laying them before him as he went. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, you might note that in Luke, the word Hosanna is not there. It's in the other Gospels. Luke was a Gentile hoping fellow Gentiles would come to know Christ. And so he knew they didn't know that word Hosanna, the ancient Hebrew word that would have referred to God saves. And of course, we sang it in the song there. So he is saying, okay, let me, let me go right to what will matter to those non-Jewish folks. But of course, Luke has some great information for his Jewish audience as well. But he's, he, he's, he's specifically trying to get his fellow Gentiles in Luke's gospel to know that this is the Lord that should be followed, the Savior of all. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're praising you. They're shouting out that you're the king. 
That could lead to trouble with uh, Roman authorities here. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, when he saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. One of the three times we read of Jesus weeping in the Gospels, this time over the hardness of heart and the lostness in the city of God, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, for the rejection of God that was characterized there in that generation, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, the things that make for real shalom. Later that week before he died on the cross, he was going to say, hey, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everywhere I go these days, I hear about the need for a comprehensive wholeness for people. To have physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. Heart, soul, mind, strength. All four of those words connect to all four of those words. Jesus wants to make you whole in all the ways that matter. And it all comes together in him in a way that no other program can get you to. Oh, that you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade against you. We watched Les Mis uh, yesterday, went down to Greensboro and saw the play with our friends, and they set up the barricade there. Your enemies are going to set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. That happened in 70 AD. Roman general Titus came through. They were tired of dealing in that generation with the rebellious Jewish leadership there, and they just crushed the city. They starved it. They crushed it. There was infighting inside the city. It was some of the most horrible days, and yet Jesus talks about the great tribulation days, even worse that are still yet to come but look what he says here you did not know the time of your visitation you did not know when God visited you you did not know when your bishop your overseer your Lord and Savior came verse 45 and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them it is written my house will be called a house of prayer but you've made it a den of robbers and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Because of the way we celebrate on the calendar Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Resurrection Sunday, sometimes we miss that between uh, Christ's entry into Jerusalem and his arrest, 20 significant things happen. And uh, if you want to come on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock to the Bible study, we're going to talk about those things in between uh, there. But today we're going to talk and emphasize these things that happened on that Sunday, 2000, no, 1990 years ago, when he rode in. Jesus still breaks things. Let's pray. My heart is full, Lord, because of this time of praise we've had. We've lifted up your name. And you promise that if you're lifted up, you'll draw people to yourself. Thank you that you've been doing that all day today around the world already as one time zone after another has been preaching Jesus and the great truths of this last week of you here on earth when you died and then rose again. And we know that you were here another 40 days. You were teaching about what God's rule looks like in the life of believers. And then you ascended to heaven and we're told that even now, you ever live to make intercession for those that are and will be yours. We're so thankful for that, God. Jesus, as we look back on this day, 1990 years ago, we think about how you broke things. And Lord, there's things you want to break in our lives, things that are idols, things that keep us from knowing you, bad priorities, God. For some, that's for non-Christians that will hear this message that don't know you and need to make their peace with God. And that's going to start with humility. It'll never start with pride, the recognition that a person needs you. You tell us that a broken heart you will not despise. Lord, a lot of people recognize that they're broken some way, but few have a broken spirit crushed before you so that you can rebuild that life around your truth. And then there are far too many believers who have become complacent with sin in their lives. 
and it affects their ability to enjoy their salvation. It affects their ability to bear fruit for you. And for some, there's even a true lostness that they don't even realize. They think they're okay and they're not. Lord, break that pride. For every saint here who has things keeping them from being everything that you have them to be, I pray that you'd break that idol today. That the sense of that being in control of their life will be left here today. And they'll truly get to enjoy how great this week can be and how great life with you can be with that renewed focus that you bring on the other side of the brokenness. And Lord, indeed, we think you're calling us to a perpetual humility and brokenness before you, where we always realize you're God and we're not, where there's always that sense of fear in all of you, where there's always that sense of love for you. I think about even the cross that I'm preaching at here, Lord God. Right down the middle is the word love and your cross represents your love for sinners, dying on the cross for our sins. And I think about how on one side of the cross there's the word faith. And Lord, the truth is that when a person believes in you and receives you, they get eternal life just like that thief that turned to you. And on the other side of this cross, we see the word truth, Lord God, the truth that you will not be mocked, that you will receive the glory due your name. You want to receive that through people turning to you in repentance and being saved, but you will get it even for those that don't repent. You will get it as you rightfully judge the defiance against you, Lord God. Oh, Lord, help us to know you as Savior and not as judge. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I love Luke chapter 19. You know, it's so great because it opens with Jesus leading one more person to faith, his personal witness that he modeled there in the Gospels. It's the last name person that he does that for before his triumphal entry. Do you remember the man's name? He's just a little guy, wee little Zacchaeus. And that's so neat because on the way to Jerusalem to die for sinners, Jesus went through uh, Jericho there and he led blind Bartimaeus and his friend to the Lord and then he also led uh, Zacchaeus to himself and that's kind of cool because you remember in John's gospel the very first person that he personally led to faith in himself there was two of them but uh, we, we first hear the name of one of them do you remember Andrew Andrew and John the two disciples uh, and then Andrew goes and tells Peter so don't you love how the gospels lay out Jesus starts his gospel by leading somebody with the letter a to the Lord and ends uh, before he goes uh, into Jerusalem Z so a to Z all covered there I kind of like when things like that work out now of course we know it was written in Greek so it works out differently that way you know but that's a wonderful thing for us English speakers that the world does revolve around right the English speakers um, and then in Luke 19, Jesus tells the parable of the minas or the minas in which he tells them the story of a king that's going to go far away and then come back. A king that's going to go on a long trip and then come back. Uh, and when he comes back, he's going to have all the rights to reign and to rule when he comes back. And he's going to expect his disciples while he's gone to take that which he's given them and invest it wisely for the kingdom and do kingdom work while he's gone so when he returns he can say uh, uh, you know what other parables talk about well done thou good and faithful servant and then he comes to Bethany at the Mount of Olives where his friends Lazarus Martha and Mary lived that wonderful couple the uh, three three brothers and sisters that siblings that had been such a, a key friends to him and he appears to really have enjoyed his time going to Bethany and spending time with them there uh, as they uh, talked about the things of the Lord and nobody could cook like Martha could cook, you know, and Mary was hanging on everything he said and Lazarus, you know, he'd risen from the dead uh, and he'd wept over. Another time he weeps was when he wept over Lazarus' dead body and then raised him to life. It appears that that house, that place in Bethany served as his headquarters because it was just outside Jerusalem up on the mountain there, on the way up the mountain. And it appears that was his headquarters for what we call this his Passion Week. And John 12 lets us know Jesus got there six days before the Jewish Passover. And the next day was his triumphal entry that we read about, we read about in our passage today. So we're going to talk about three different categories of breaking that Jesus did uh, that day. The first one is Jesus breaks a donkey, verses 28 to 40. Uh, he breaks a donkey. 
Beautiful imagery is in these verses. Jesus getting the praise he deserves as Israel's king. He didn't usually get it while he was on earth, but he will be, uh, we praise him now and he will be praised throughout eternity and he will receive his rightful praise as Israel's king one day and the savior and lord of the entire world. I love how the disciples did what he asked in verses 29 to 32. This is kind of a, a weird assignment here. But he said, go untie uh, go to a, 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 into the town and there's going to be a donkey colt there. No one's ever sat upon it. Untie it. And of course, the fact that nobody had sat on it, what did that mean? That meant that donkey was unbroken. Uh, and bring it to me. And he said, if anyone asks you about it, say, the master needs it. Now, I know some of you own horses and donkeys. Now, if someone came to your barn and they untied one of your animals and started leading away one of your horses or donkeys... How would you react if they just said, hey, calm down, Jesus needs it? <laughs> you say, wait a second, what are you doing taking my donkey away? What are you doing taking my horse away? Oh, man, I just love this whole imagery that's put here. I bet when we get to heaven, we'll hear about how God gave the owners of the donkey some kind of vision in which they knew this moment would come uh, because no resistance is recorded. They were somehow sovereignly prepared to say, well, it's all God's anyway, right? Of course this would happen. We'd get to use some of our stuff to bless kingdom work. So yeah, take the donkey. If Jesus needs it, if the master needs it, go ahead and take it. I wonder if they were among those who Jesus had healed of something or cast a demon out of. And just saying Jesus' name, the master needs it, was enough for them to say, yeah, we're all in. Like we do when we hear about something and we go, oh yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure God wants me to be part of that. But let me pray about it just to make sure. Well, however the confirmation came, they let it happen. And I love how God brings together people who have a need with people that can meet the need. Look at verse 35. Verse 35 says, And they brought this donkey to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now let me say to something to those who have never rode an unbroken horse or donkey, okay? Don't try this at home. Serious injury may result if you try to get on a horse that's never been ridden before or a donkey that's never been ridden before and, and, and get on there, right? I mean, it, it, it doesn't want to be rode. What do we talk about the process that means an animal can be ridden? Breaking them, right? Breaking them. Breaking them in so they can actually have a rider on there. It takes some work to break an animal unless, of course, you are Jesus, and Jesus modeled for us on earth what's going to be true during his thousand-year reign, during the millennium that Revelation 20 speaks of. And then, of course, this is true, the new earth out beyond that as well. Jesus could walk and he'd see a physical problem and say, gone, and it was gone. He could see an emotional problem and take care of it. He could see a spiritual problem like demon possession, cast the demon out. And whatever it was on that health spectrum, he could take care of it right there. He could walk on water because he was God and could do that. And uh, so powerful, all the things that were true of him. And it just, it's almost like if you ever saw that old movie, Pleasantville, you know, it's in black and white until the characters start walking through and then it becomes color. But they were thinking in that in terms of sinful things changing. But for Jesus, it's just like, he just brightens like the song says, Ferris Lord Jesus, right? And when he was on earth, he modeled how it's gonna be when he reigns on earth. And we're getting the foretaste of that as he reigns in our hearts as believers now. So he sits on that dog and the donkey's like, this is great. I get to have the creator of me and this universe riding on my back. No resistance. Because humans are the only things that really resist what God wants them to be. Jesus instantly breaks this donkey colt and makes it rideable. And he can easily do what takes people's strenuous effort and sometimes doesn't succeed. Instead of resisting Jesus, this donkey submitted to him and became perhaps the most celebrated donkey in world history. Balaam's donkey might be second place and Shrek might be third. And for those that don't know the Gospels at all, maybe Shrek's number one, Shrek's donkey's number one. But this was the greatest assignment for any donkey that ever lived. I wonder what great thing you could do for God if you stopped resisting Jesus and let him break you. If you stop being stubborn all the time. 
I don't want you to ride me, Jesus. I don't want to be used of you. I want to do what I want to do. I, I remain unbroken. Well, why a donkey? Why a donkey? Well, donkeys are beasts of burdens, right? Fitting for a suffering servant. And riding into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a, the, the white horse of a Roman conquering king like when they would have a parade there, when they'd have a triumph, a triumph celebration in Rome, the Roman generals would ride in on a white horse. All the work was done. They'd made the, they, they'd conquered. They had all the people from the territories that were now belonged to Rome. They'd bring those in. And the Bible does say that one day Jesus will return riding on a white horse. We'll be on white horses coming in after him representing the victory already achieved in Jesus. And he's going to come and rule and reign physically, even as he rules and reigns spiritually now in our hearts. But I love the fact that during his first coming, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Beasts of burden. Why? Because the heavy lifting still had to happen, the death on the cross for sinners. There's another play on this in the gospels and in the bible story with lambs and lions right so john the baptist saw him and said behold the lamb of god who does what takes away the sin of the world that's fun to say let's say it together behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world but revelation 1 opens and it talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5 pictures him as the lion who is also the lamb who was slain, right? Who's going to return to earth and rule and reign as he alone can do. Lamb, lion. Now, in the Bible, it's never a good thing when a lion shows up because lions represent ripping us apart, judging us. We're told that Satan roars around the earth right now like a lion looking who he can devour. And so when Revelation 1 uses lion imagery related to Jesus, it means the day's coming when he'll be the judge. You don't want to meet him for the first time that way. You want to know him as the lamb who meekly and mildly bore your sin so that you wouldn't have to face him as judge. This writing in on the Donkey also fulfilled Isaiah 62.11 and Zechariah 9.9. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Look at verse 36. It says, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And I already mentioned Matthew and Mark add in the palms that they cut down and spread before him. The people of Israel had done that before for a king. We read in 2 Kings 9, 13 of them doing that for King Jehu while he rode in. It was a royal welcome for those prepared to welcome Jesus as their Messiah and true king of Israel. And so one of the questions that come up is, are these the same people that are going to be there a week later yelling, crucify him? And the answer is probably for the most part not. These are those that at some level already had received him and, and received some kind of miracle from him and loved him and wanted him to be the king of Israel. Uh, look at verse 37 there. It says, as they were drawing near on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of what? Of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Next week, we'll talk about the other crowd who yelled crucify him and that probably was stuffed chock full of those that were with the priests. Uh, they had a guard of 10,000 potentially, you know, when they added all together there uh, throughout the land and they were all, many there for the feast and they probably stuffed that place full of those who yelled, yelled crucify him. But there is a possibility that some people were in both crowds and had praised him as the conquering king coming into Jerusalem on the one Sunday and the next Friday we're yelling crucify him and we know with our own fickle hearts prone to wander Lord we feel it sometimes we're in that place like the hymn said the scoffers you know scoffing and we recognize that when Jesus died he died for all of our sin those who got it those who don't get it all together true Jerusalem had swelled in numbers for the Passover festival. And I bet among those praising Jesus that day that would have called themselves at some level his disciples were those he had healed of foot problems. Can you see it? You got healed somewhere else in Jerusalem or in Judea or Galilee. And for the first time, you were able to use your feet to attend the Passover festival. And you hope you'd see Jesus again because he had made you able to walk. Isn't that great to think about? 
There's 15 psalms, the traveling psalms of ascent that they would sing on the way. In this last week of Christ's life, there are several quotes related to those psalms and what Jesus had done. So here they come along. I wonder if in that crowd, that traveling crowd, was people that Jesus had opened their eyes and they weren't blind anymore, and people that he'd opened their ears and they could hear for the first time. They were no longer deaf. I wonder if for the first time as they came to the festival, they were seeing the sights they hadn't seen, and and they were hearing the, the, the noises that they hadn't heard around that, you know. I wonder if among those who came for the first time to the festival, after Jesus had met them, I wonder if there were those who had been, had a demon, a demonic possession of some kind, harassed and oppressed in some way, and they'd always been distracted. They'd never been able to focus fully in on worshiping God in some way. And now they're able to come to the festival. The demons are gone, and they love Jesus, and here they want to see if this is the time that he's going to come into Jerusalem because they, so many of them were already embracing the fact that he was their Messiah. At this point, Probably most of them were still praising Jesus for what he had done for them, not necessarily fully understanding his lordship yet. Oh, isn't that true in churches today? You know, you had a need and somehow Jesus met it and the church met it through Jesus some way for you and and, and you love Jesus but you don't know about following him as Lord and you struggle with that. I wonder if some of them were like that today, back then. Many of them were still thinking in terms of what Jesus could do for them instead of what they could do for Jesus as they followed him. And many of you are are like that. It's all about what he does for you. America's churches have become full. They're not as full as they used to be, but they become full of people that come saying, you know, Jesus just does something for me. He makes me feel better about myself. He, he makes me feel better about some of the, uh, at some level he's forgiven the bad things I've done and yet there really hasn't been a lot of transformation and change in their life. They've just pulled out those verses and some pastors have helped them pull those verses out. All the good things Jesus can do for you without uh, the hard things that Jesus calls you to do as his follower and to be surrendered to him. And are, are, Were those folks fully saved? Are people that believe like that fully saved now? Well, maybe some, but maybe many are completely mistaken because they haven't truly become a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, he's not just selling hell insurance. He'd rather one person be committed to his cause than a thousand that are merely interested. He he wants all of you. He, He wants you to follow him as the Lord of your life. He wants to take all the things that you keep messing up in your brokenness and he wants to break those and rebuild them around his truth. And you want to let that happen. Look at what they say in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And that was actually in the words of Psalm 118, which the pilgrims to the Passover had sung on their way to Jerusalem for the festival. It was, can you imagine being in those, wherever you were from, coming down and say, hey, let's sing the Psalms of Ascent one more time. And they just sing them. They just sing them as they went. I wonder how many understood that Jesus was about to become the ultimate Passover lamb. You know, they sang that one song, he's the king, he's, he's going to do stuff for us. But you know what the next verse says in Psalm 118? It speaks of binding the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. We're going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to present a sacrificial lamb, and when the lamb is slaughtered, we'll be forgiven of our sins. And, of course, that's what they were about to do with Jesus. Jesus was going to do for them. Well, look at verse 39. The the teachers, they couldn't stand this was happening. The Pharisees there, they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. These were the official leaders of the country who were as upset uh, at Jesus as Mr. Banks was with Mary Poppins in the story I told at the beginning. They were upset because they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus, after all, hadn't cleared things with them. Surely the Messiah, when he comes, would clear things with the human rulers of the land rather than tell them what to do as God on earth, tell them what they needed to do. Well, they were familiar with the passages of the Old Testament they liked but hadn't really embraced that he would be a suffering servant before being a conquering king. And perhaps they were also afraid that Pilate would come and crush this parade if it looked like the coronation of a king 
and it would affect all their hard work of compromising they had done with godless Romans in charge, just like so many people in churches today. Say, preacher, tone it down a little bit. The authorities might be listening. People that get a hold of friends in church and they say, you know, you, let me tell you, I know the preacher talks about being all in and full commitment and standing for Christ no matter what, but that's just not the way the world works, son. That's not the way the world works, daughter. That's not the way the world works, friend. And so you're going to hear certain things at church that are impractical and you just can't apply in your secular job out there. And so let me tell you, the sooner you learn to compartmentalize things, the better. We can talk about that at church and maybe you can think about it at home, but when it comes to the world, you're going to have to make these compromises to go along to get along. And that's just become standard operating position for so many of us as we interact with the things of the world. <laughs> Jesus, for his part, looked at them. They're saying, tone it down, Jesus. Get your disciples to stop that. We could get in trouble. And Jesus says, if they're silent, the rocks will cry out. I deserve praise. And in this moment, it's going to happen and it, as it happened in heaven throughout eternity past. And it's going to happen in heaven throughout eternity future. And it will happen on earth one day. And the sooner we get in on that praise, the more ready we'll be ready to join the heavenly choir. God will get the glory that he deserves. He gets it all the time through other things he's created. Uh, my goodness, the fairest Lord Jesus song sang about it, right? The sunset, the sunrise. Oh, how beautiful those are. The way we look at creation and we see the hand of God all around us. The way we see a monster dunk in basketball and a player doesn't even acknowledge the Lord, but he's given them that body and the abilities to that they've developed to that point. Some of that ought to make us go, praise God for the different gifts he gives people. When somebody sings, that sings so much better than we could. I want to say, thank God for those pipes. Oh, Lord, help them to use those to praise you one day. But the animals, just by being beautiful animals that they are, they bring God that praise. The stones cry out. Creation cries out. It's constantly preaching, Psalm 19 tells us. Constantly, the stars and the heavens and all that happens there are constantly saying, we have a creator who does all things well. Make no mistake about it. The Bible teaches he will get the praise he deserves from humans as well. Every human. Every human. Philippians 2 says at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee is going to bow down and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, those that make it to heaven because of the blood of Christ and trusting him, those who reject him one day will be in hell. They'll be in the lake of fire and they'll be saying, Jesus was Lord and I blew it by defying him and living as a rule unto myself. God is glorified. God is glorified now by the rocks in creation. He is glorified now by some people. He will be glorified by all. He's glorified when broken sinners turn to Jesus and are saved, but he also is glorified in the judgment of unbroken unbelievers who refuse to believe, even if they're religious. Many of these people were very religious. They would have said they do everything for God, but 0% of their life was about Jesus. And among professing Baptists, there are people, everything I do is ordered around church and uh, religiosity and things, but almost nothing is based on the priority of your faith in Jesus and what he is in your life. God help us. Jesus rode this unbroken donkey. He broke it right there, and he breaks things. The next thing he broke is so amazing because the next thing we read is that Jesus broke his own heart over Jerusalem. Verses 41 through 44. We don't always remember what happened at the close of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It says that after that time of praise and palm leaves and all those different things, he rode to where he could see the city and he stopped on that now broken donkey and he cried, he lamented, he wept over an unbroken city and an unbroken nation. Can you picture the sight? Can you picture the tears flowing from Jesus' face? As he looked at Jerusalem, he knew what it should be. He, he knew all the heartache that would come over the centuries and the millennia from defying their Messiah and not turning to him. And that was just one microcosm, one city and one nation of a world that has largely defied him. And he wept and the tears flowed just like they had at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, who he knew he was going to raise, but still death impacted Jesus. 
And the Bible says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wishes everybody would repent and live. And here's his tears flowing over Jerusalem. To be sure, individuals within the nation had turned to him. All of his disciples had a Jewish background. But the official leaders, the majority of the people, had refused to get over their wrong ideas about their Messiah and what he'd be like from the Old Testament and see how Jesus was fulfilling the Bible Old Testament in their midst. He was what the Bible had said he would be. They just didn't want to look at those passages. Those were harder passages to deal with than that one day he'd give them what they thought they needed. He'll give you what you need, but he'll bring you places that you wouldn't have brought yourself. He'll take you through things you wouldn't take yourself through, but you'll be a better person on the other side of it. I can testify to that. Coming to Christ at 17, now 55, uh, many things he's brought into my life I wouldn't have brought into my life but all have been part of his process in making me who he wants me to be on the way to being completely what I'm supposed to be in heaven I wonder how many of you hearing this are just as unbroken as that city right now refusing to turn from your favorite sin if following Jesus means repenting of that sin I'm just not going to do it I'm perfectly willing for him to be my hell insurance but he's not going to be lord over that area of my life that ain't changing, Jesus. You're going to have to get over it. And I hear you're such a loving, tolerant guy. You'll do it anyway. You may not know Jesus if that's your posture. Now, now, don't get me wrong. You can struggle with any sin as long as you understand that it's sin and you acknowledge that it's sin. You say the same thing about your sin the Bible does. Over time, there will be victory, even if it means on the other side of your death when you're with Jesus. Victory is guaranteed. You never want to stop fighting with that, though. You never want to stop saying, I want Jesus to reign in my heart and life. I want his will to be done in this area. One of the things he makes his people is forever fighters for holiness in their lives. You think you control that sin, and it really controls you. It's cheating you out of your real peace, your li real life with Jesus. You refuse to let Jesus break you and save you. You refuse to submit to your king, believing it will be all right on judgment day. And if you're just defying God like that, you may not understand true faith. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So make no mistake about it, there's a fight going on for some people right now. And just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem that day, the Bible pre presents Jesus in heaven now, interceding for you to become everything he has for you to become in Christ. For the non-believer, that means making your peace with God. For the believer, that means letting him break that idol in your life. Letting him break that sin's control. Turning to him and letting him take you from where you are to where he wants you to be. Here in Luke 19, we see Jesus' broken heart for unrepentant sinners. And he has that heart for us as well. Look at verse 42. Would that you knew the things that make for peace. Would that you knew the things that were in your best interest. Oh, so many people I'm talking to believe that if you followed Jesus and got right with him, it would mean going to places you just don't want to go. You think living your best life means denying Jesus and his words and embracing who you want to be as the Lord of your own life, and you've got it so mixed up and backwards. It controls you. You don't control it, and it's messing you up. And Jesus wants to free you from that by breaking those chains and having you become all you can be in him. Would that you knew the things that make for peace, he says. And then he makes a prophecy that came true 40 years later when Roman general Titus destroyed Jerusalem. Not one stone would be left out upon another. And when we think about the sad history of the Jewish people, we think about all the heartache that Israel could have been spared of had they turned to Jesus when he came. It's at least theoretically possible that if the nation had accepted him, his rule would have started right then. They're still looking for it in Acts 1 before he goes to heaven. They say, Lord, is it this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know times and dates the Father's set. What you need to know is you need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. All that's going to happen later. Right now, there's this parenthesis before God brings all his purposes for Israel and the world back to play in the, into play at the, in the end times. And the scripture has different ways of speaking about that. But think about all the heartache. Later that week, many of those would be among those who shouted, crucify him. Those who said, teacher, silence your disciples. Later said, well, he didn't want them to be silenced. We're going to silence him, crucify him. 
But praise God, I do believe that on the day of Pentecost, some of those that were saved were those who had yelled crucify him and defied him, just like I've seen defiant sinners saved over time. Later in Acts 6, we read that many of the priests believed, those who had yelled crucify him, many of them believed. We know that during this church age, this age of grace, many Jewish people have turned to Christ. God does have a future plan of restoration coming, but oh, the temporary consequences to the nation that defied God. And there will be consequences if you defy God. You know him as Savior, but there will be consequences if you refuse to follow him as Lord. There are things in your life you won't experience that you could have with Jesus as long as you're in that defiant, unbroken state. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. God is gracious. You can, he, he allows you to come back at any point in your life when you finally get it, but don't miss what your life could have been, especially the younger you are, the sooner you get it, the, the more faithful and fruitful you can be as you serve the Lord. Oh, there's older people in this room and they wish they could talk to some of you younger folk right now and go, I wish I'd listened to a message like this when I was young. I just had to be with that person. I had to make that decision. I had to go here. I had to go there. And I lost years of stress and turmoil in my life that I might not have experienced if I'd followed the Lord from the beginning. Is there anybody in here that's older that can say amen? Verse 44. He says the problem was, as he wept over Jerusalem, you did not know the time of your visitation. And that word for visitation is so interesting because it's the word episcope used of the office of bishop or overseer in Titus 3.1. You didn't realize your bishop was here, your pastor was here. You didn't realize when the one who could have changed everything with you came. This is really nothing to sneeze at. Many of them would have said they did everything for God, but they were really quite selfish. And when God came to save them, they refused to repent. They kept living as unbroken donkeys, and so do many of you. And their stones that they loved in that tab temple building there, those stones came crumbling down. And many of you have lives that are falling apart without Jesus. Won't you turn to him and get your peace? If not for you, Jesus might have to keep breaking things. And that's the last part of the section here. Jesus broke a few more things that day. In verses 45 to 48, we read of the time he went into the temple there. And he saw them with money changers' tables going on, and that wasn't a, a bad service. They, you know, could come and they could trade their money in and be able to uh, then use that money to buy a sacrifice. It was a good thing you didn't have to carry the lamb all the way there. You could buy a lamb or pigeons if you were poor and those things. It was a good service, probably. But they were doing that. Look what it says. He entered the temple, verse 45, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So where was this happening? They had multiple levels of courts. The priests could go the furthest. The high priest went the very furthest, the Holy of Holies. The priest could be in the court of priests. The Jewish women could be outside of there. And then they had this court of the Gentiles that surrounded the temple. And that's where they were doing this money changing. That's where they had all these sacrificial, that's where all the merchandising was going on, all those different things. You know what they were saying by all that commotion right there? We don't care if Gentiles know God or not. You say, Danny, how can you conclude this? How can you conclude that? Well, look, look again at verse 45, uh, verse 46. My house shall be a house of prayer. The full quote is, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And it goes all the way back to 2 Chronicles 6, which I urge you to read later on. In 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon said, God, people sin, and they need to be forgiven of sin. So God, when your people Israel realize they've blown it, and when they pray toward this temple or actually get here physically, if they're far away in a foreign land and, uh, you know, in captivity, when they pray toward this temple, or if when they get here, when they come here and pray and say, and say God, forgive us for our sin, when they agree with, about their sin and they ask you to forgive them, God, may you hear from heaven and forgive their sin. And that's what the Jewish temple meant for the people, that place you could come and have that sacrifice take care of your sins. But Solomon wasn't done praying in 2 Chronicles 6. He said, and God, I, I want to ask one more thing. When foreigners, wherever they're at in the world, hear how great you are, God. And they say, let me go to Jerusalem to check out if there's anything to that Yahweh stuff. 
when they take the time to get all the way here, when they come and pray and say, God, we've seen that you're the creator. We want to know you personally, and you're doing something here at this place, this temple in Jerusalem. Solomon said, when they come and when they uh, get in that moment of quiet there before you, as close in, in this, as the temple as they can get, when they ask you to do something, God, won't you hear from heaven? Won't you forgive their sin? Won't you make yourself as real to them as you do for your people Israel? Guess what happens two or three chapters later? The queen of Sheba comes to Jerusalem. She's that answer to Solomon's prayer. And she hears about Yahweh. And the way the text unfolds, it sure looks like she turns to Jesus or turns to Yahweh and comes to know him. In fact, we know she did. Because that's what Jesus tells us in the Gospels. She came, she heard, and she went away a different person. And oh, that all the people Jesus said that were listening to me now would be like her. That's what Jesus is, that's why he's breaking these tables and different things like that. You've made the one place they could hear about Yahweh a place they can't hear about Yahweh. I hope you're listening, people that make church about politics. I hope you're listening people that make church about social life. I hope you're listening people that make church about a thousand other things and forget that this is Jesus' church so the nations can hear and turn to him for faith and salvation. If not, Jesus wants to break some things in your church or your small group or whatever it is if it's not about Jesus. And so Jesus came and started breaking things so Jews and Gentiles alike could come to know God through faith in Jesus. And if you're here today, I don't know what God needs to break in you, brother or sister, for you to give him the glory he deserves. But don't settle for anything else than letting him do it so you can bring him the glory now that he deserves in your life. And the rest of your life can be about being connected to God yourself and getting people connected to God. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.